Well, this morning we are going to wrap up our series entitled The Lamb of God. Uh, we spent the last three weeks really diving in to looking at Jesus coming as the Lamb of God, his first coming, and then looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And let me just say what I've said every single week. Uh, end time studies are intended not to create intimidation. End time studies are intended to create activation. God wants to activate the church for an end time harvest. God wants to activate the church so that we are ready and prepared for what is to come in the world and so that in the season that we're living in that we are fully ready and prepared for the things that God is bringing on the scene. Because we are not children of the dark, Jesus says. We're children of the light and we can see and know the things that God is desiring and wanting and going to do on the earth. And so we need to be ready. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, so let me just revisit real quick one thought we've had every week, and that is that all end time events are rooted in redemption. Just remember that. As you read the Bible, when you read Revelations or Daniel or Ezekiel, recognize that every end time event is rooted in redemption. God's heartbeat is that none should perish but that all people should come to repentance. That is the heart of God. So when you read about end time events, recognize that. This is an act of redemption. We said specifically the great tribulation will set into motion that, that final act of redemption where God will begin to redeem, right? We said three things, the Jews, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. And then we recognize also not only is that end time event going to set into motion the redemption of Israel, but it's also going to bring a full, complete redemption to the entire earth and the world. Is everything is accumulative going to build up from Genesis to Revelations. Everything's going to come to a pinnacle at the end of the age, and God's going to usher in a new age, a new heaven, a new earth that we're going to actually talk about a little bit later this morning. It's an exciting, exciting time for us to live. So John chapter 1 verse 29 says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So look at that first point on your outline for all you note takers today. Jesus as the Lamb of God when he came in the first time offered himself as the Passover Lamb, establishing what we now call communion. And through communion we remember his death. We remember the price that he paid for our salvation. But communion is also a reminder that we too must suffer with him. Now I want to start on that last part and then I'm going to back up and talk about the first part. So last Sunday I had somebody come up to me after church and they were very jokingly, kiddingly said this to me. They said, Pastor Keith, uh, tribulation and persecution, Merry Christmas from Liberty Church. <laughs> That's what they heard last Sunday, right? We talked a little bit last week about persecution and tribulation. And I thought, how funny that is. Persecution tribulation, Merry Christmas from Liberty Church. But you know what? I, I want you to hear something today. We recognize that persecution and tribulation are normal parts of Christianity. And that communion, next Sunday we're going to have a candlelight Christmas service and we're going to close the service with communion. Communion is a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's also a reminder that we are also partakers in his suffering. And let me, give you, let me give you some good news today. When you think about the fact that we can suffer for Christ, it is really an honor and a privilege that we can bear that in our lives. Now let me give you just a little perspective here. 
All of us in this room and everybody watching online has experienced the suffering that comes from our sin and our selfishness and our poor choices and our poor decisions. As a matter of fact, all of us in this room have suffered from our own sin, selfishness, and shortcomings. Our foolish decisions, our rebellious decisions, our sinful decisions. And let's be honest, not only have we suffered because of our sin, we have inflicted suffering on other people. Right? Our sin not only brought suffering to us, but our sin brought suffering to the people that we loved. And many of us, unfortunately, have inflicted great pain and great sorrow on other people because of our sinful, selfish choices and decisions. So the Apostle Peter says this. He says, how glorious and how wonderful it is that we would suffer not for sin's sake, but that we would suffer for doing what is right in the eyes of God. He actually says, count it a privilege, count it an honor, count it a blessing, because the glory of God rests on you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. And let me encourage you in this. If nobody preaches on this, if nobody talks about this, then let me tell you what happens when persecution, tribulation, and suffering comes. Christians give up. Christians give in. Christians throw in the towel. See, we need to be mentally, emotionally, and spiritually prepared to suffer, not for sin, but for doing what is right in the eyes of God. And if you're not mentally and emotionally and spiritually prepared, then guess what will happen when suffering comes? You will crumble. You will falter. You will fail. You'll throw in the towel. You'll say, nobody ever told me this. Well, guess what? You can't say that anymore. Your pastor has loved you enough to encourage you again, not intimidation. That shouldn't put fear in us. It should create an activation and a spirit of faith that says, you know what? I'm going to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be counted worthy. I suffered enough in my sin. I'm now going to stand. And if I have to suffer for doing what is right in the eyes of God, then glory be to God. Do you know what the New Testament apostles said the first time they were persecuted for Christ? They were beaten, they were whipped, and they were imprisoned. They rejoiced, the Bible says, that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, I'm not prophesying any of those things upon anyone in this room, but I am declaring according to the Word of God that tribulation, persecution, and suffering are a part of Christianity. At least, as we're going to see, in this season and in this age that we're living in. So, now let's back up and talk about that first part. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, offered himself as the Passover Lamb, establishing what we call communion. Luke 22, verse 14 through 20. It says, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. He was about to go to the cross. Look what he says in verse 16. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's significant. You ought to remember that. I will not eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Verse 19. And he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. If you've got your Bible out, you ought to underline that little phrase, do this to remember me. Because that one little phrase, Jesus just made a supernatural paradigm shift in the minds of the disciples. We're going to talk about what that is because most of us as New Testament Christians are oblivious to what just happened in the Bible. Jesus said, do this to remember me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his holy people and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So let's talk about this paradigm shift. Let's talk about what Jesus just implemented that changed everything. So when they were gathered together, they were celebrating the Jewish feast and festival of Passover. And according to the law, when a Jew celebrated Passover, they were to remember something. They were to remember the blood of the lamb that was over the doorposts of their house, that the death angel passed over their home, and how that God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Passover was a time to remember the blood of the lamb, the death angel passing over, and how God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And here comes Jesus saying, this is going to be the last time I'm going to eat Passover with you until I eat it again in the kingdom of God when it fully comes and then he says this so from now on when you eat this meal do it in remembrance of me he says don't remember the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost don't remember the Passover angel. Don't remember how God delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. I want you from this moment on to remember Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a shift. You know what happened? He took an old covenant principle and brought it into a new covenant reality. And now... Every fourth Sunday at Liberty Church, we celebrate communion. And you know what we do every time? We remember Jesus, the body and the blood of the Lamb of God. Why? Because we are partaking. We are partaking of a new covenant meal that was sealed and settled and established through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That doesn't minimize Jewish Passover. That doesn't undermine what the Jews celebrate as they remember that mo monumental day. But it established something new. Jesus established a new covenant based on better promises purchased with the blood of the Lamb of God. And next Sunday, Christmas Eve, when we gather here with our families and our friends, we're going to remember the body and the blood. Of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful thing he did. Now, Romans chapter 8. Paul says this. He says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. How many know we're not afraid? Come on, somebody. 
You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit, look at verse 16, joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Let me tell you something. Salvation is not the result of praying a prayer. Salvation is not the result of shaking the preacher's hand. Salvation is not the result of going through a membership class. Salvation is not the result of being water baptized. Salvation is the result of you being born again and God's spirit joining your spirit and declaring you are a child of God. How do I know I'm born again? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. I don't know I'm born again because I go to church. I don't know I'm born again because I pray to prayer. I don't know I'm born again because I got baptized. I know I'm born again because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. Every religion has rituals of religion that are significant and important. And baptism and church membership and even shaking the preacher's hand every now and then is not a bad thing. But none of those things bring our salvation. We are saved because we've been born again. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is joined to our spirit. And now we know that I am and you are a child of God. That inner witness of the spirit is the proof of our salvation. And that's why I believe when you truly get born again... You know you're born again. Can I get an amen? amen? Verse 17, he goes on. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his what? There it is, right? His suffering. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a joy that we could suffer for righteousness' sake. Look at verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. The suffering that we endure now is nothing compared to the glory that God is going to reveal later. So let's talk about that glory. Look at that next point. Jesus, the Lamb of God, when he comes again, will invite those who are born again to the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. This meal is not a remembrance. This meal is a celebration of what is to come, sealing our eternal salvation and redemption as the bride of Christ. The marriage supper is a celebration that we will reign with him. Jesus, the first time, partook of Passover, offered himself as a Passover lamb, and implemented what we call communion to remember his death. But Jesus in the new covenant or in the new kingdom, as we step into the end of the age, he's going to invite those who have been born again to the marriage supper of the lamb. He said, I will not eat this bread or drink this wine until I come in my kingdom. And when his kingdom is being established at that day, guess what? That meal is going to be a celebration of what is to come because the glory of what God has in front of us outweighs the suffering of anything that could ever be behind us. And we get to celebrate with Christ that we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. Listen to what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 19. And after this, John said, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
And his judgments are true and just. And he has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again their voices ring out, praise the Lord. And the smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. The great prostitute is the great city of Babylon who the Bible says corrupts the world with immorality and perversion. And what is interesting here in Revelation 19 as he talks about that great prostitute being destroyed, it steps in. The very next thing that happens after the destruction of immorality is the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is going to eradicate the immoral and God is going to enter into a marriage covenant with the bride of Christ. A covenant that is sealed and signified by purity, integrity, and love. A covenant that is rooted and grounded in the love of God for whosoever would believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And that great prostitute, will be destroyed. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. And then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come, look at this, for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. And she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Remember that. She was given pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, and these are the true words that come from God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, became the Passover Lamb, implemented communion. Jesus as the Lamb of God will invite those who are born again in Christ, the church, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate, not remember we will celebrate what is to come. We will celebrate the fact that God is consummating and sealing his covenant with his bride. And that we will reign and we will rule with him forever and ever and ever. Look at that next thought. So Jesus as the Lamb of God established the kingdom of God within us. His spiritual kingdom reigns and rules in and through those who are born again. And we are catalysts for his kingdom. I want to talk about that last part for just a second. We are catalysts for his kingdom. Let me encourage you in something today. Why does your Christian life matter? Why does your Christian life matter? As a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, why does your daily walk matter? Why does it matter the way you treat your family? Why does it matter the way you conduct your business? Why does it matter how you manage your money? Why does it matter the words that you say and the attitudes that you have and the conduct that you carry? Let me tell you why it matters. Because you are a catalyst for the kingdom. You are the vessel and the vehicle through which God's power and authority is ministered to the earth. God reigns and rules through us, the Spirit of God living in us, and we become the catalyst for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And how many of you understand that if Christ is not ruling in you, it's going to be difficult for Christ to rule through you? If Christ is not ruling in your personal life, then how is Christ going to rule through you to bring other people to Christ? The realization of our lives matters, guys. How we live matters. How we conduct ourselves matters. Our attitudes, our actions, our daily decisions matter because we are the catalyst for the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, established the kingdom within us. Luke 17. It says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come in observation. They were looking for a physical kingdom. There's going to be a physical kingdom. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But when Jesus came the first time as the Lamb of God, he didn't bring a physical kingdom. He brought a spiritual kingdom. Look what he says. He says, No, they will say, See here or see there. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. It's within you. It's in you. The kingdom of God is within you. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, brings God's kingdom, his power, his dominion, his authority into the hearts and lives of those who have been born again. In Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus says this, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want you to, to listen. Let's pause for a second. Let's, let's, let's connect the dots of what Jesus said. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come among you. So let's flip that for just a second. The kingdom comes through the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that brings the kingdom of God into the hearts and lives of people. That's why in John chapter 3, verse 3, we're going to look at it together. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said this to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel, Jesus said. You must be born again. What happens when you get born again and the Spirit of God joins your spirit? All of a sudden, His kingdom has come. His power, His authority is manifested and demonstrated through the person of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in each and every one of you. That's why, the holy, that's why the devil wants to keep you from acknowledging and embracing the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why he wants to disconnect you from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why he wants you to walk in your flesh and the reasoning of your mind instead of the revelation and the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to live in fear instead of live in faith. Why? Because the devil knows that when the Spirit of God reigns and rules in you, it can reign and rule through you. And the kingdom comes. John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus again, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Romans 14 verse 17, the Bible says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, right? The kingdom of God is not rules and regulations. It's not behavior. It's not behavioral modification. It is spiritual transformation. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And without the Holy Ghost, there is no kingdom. Amen? And without the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no dominion, and there's no reigning, and there's no ruling. And that's why so many Christians live defeated lives, because they have neglected the Holy Spirit who brings the kingdom of God into their 
lives. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's presence and power in order to invoke and operate in his kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I don't know about you guys. That sounds good to me. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not the persuasive words of man's wisdom, but it is the power of God that changes lives. We can argue with people till we're blue in the face, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit can turn a Saul into a Paul in the blink of an eye. We can argue until we're blue in the face, but it's that conviction. It's the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated in signs and wonders and miracles, demonstrated through the conviction and the drawing of the Holy Spirit, demonstrated through the word of the Lord going forth, not in wisdom, but in power and might that changes our world. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, established a spiritual kingdom when he came the first time. Look at that next thought. Jesus, the Lamb of God, in his second coming, will establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. This will be a physical kingdom. It will be a natural kingdom. He will literally come to the earth and he will establish his kingdom. This is called the millennial reign. For 1,000 years, he, and I put in parentheses, and we, because we're going to rule with him, will rule the earth with a rod of iron. What does that mean? He's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. When Jesus comes again during the millennial reign, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It means simply this. He is going to enforce his kingdom on planet earth. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He's coming the second time as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will rule with a rod. He will enforce his kingdom on the earth, and you will submit or else. He's going to come. First time he came to bring a spiritual kingdom. Second time he's coming to bring a physical kingdom. To bring a kingdom on the earth. Let's look at the scripture here. Revelations 19. It says, And then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. And his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. If you remember when the first seal was broken, there was a rider on a white horse. That was the Antichrist. Now there's another rider on a white horse. That's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is ready to redeem the earth. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. What happened at the marriage supper of the Lamb? What did he give to those who were invited to the marriage supper? He gave them pure white linen robes. And when Jesus Christ comes to invoke a, his millennial reign on the earth, the armies of heaven, those who are dressed in pure white linen, the redeemed, the born-again church, 
is going to come with him on white horses. I hope you like to ride. Come on, somebody. And from his mouth, verse 15, a sharp sword will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come and gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings and generals, strong warriors and horses and their riders, and all of humanity, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown, in, thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on their dead bodies. Jesus with a word. The sword's going to come out of his mouth. He's going to speak the word. Just as God spoke the word and brought creation, God is going to speak the word and annihilate his enemies who have opposed him. And the sword's going to come out of his mouth. And the vultures are going to gorge themselves on dead bodies. Revelations 20. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit, and a heavy chain was in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan. And he bound him in chains for a thousand years. And the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And afterwards he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and people sitting on them have been given authority to judge. This is the saints ruling now the earth. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast who is the Antichrist or his statue, nor had they accepted his mark in their forehead or their hands. And they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. So these that are being raised to life are those who during the tribulation period refuse to take the mark of the beast. And they will be killed. By, typically, most the Bible says they will be, most of them, beheaded because of their refusal to worship the Antichrist and the beast. And the Bible says when Jesus comes for the millennial reign and he destroys the enemy, he binds Satan for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, then there's going to be a first resurrection where those who did not take the mark of the beast, those who literally died for their faith, many and much of those will be Jewish people, will be resurrected, physically resurrected, because we've already experienced the rapture of the church and we already got glorified bodies, Amen. And now these are going to be resurrected where they will reign with us, the armies of God, and with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead, those who had been slain, those who had died during the tribulation, those who had been slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of Jesus, will not yet be raised at this time.
Verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. And there's a lot of prophecy and Bible teaching out there about Gog and Magog. And I'm going to let you search that out on your own. And he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numerous as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. Here we are. We're back at where? Jerusalem. The beloved city is the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because all end time events revolve around three things. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. If you understand that, you can rightly interpret end time prophecy. If you don't understand that, which many people want to put America in the middle of it, and guess what? We are irrelevant Every nation has a part to play, but the centerpiece of end-time events is not the great America. It's the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. They're the crown jewel of God's creation. And at the end of the age, as the, Antich as, as the, the devil is released out of that thousand-year pit, he gathers the nations to war again against God and his people. Look at this. And the Bible says, as they gathered around the beloved city, that but the fire, but fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. When Jesus came, the sword of his mouth destroyed those who gathered against him. After the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ and the nations gather again against Jesus and the body of Christ as a whole, God the Father from heaven will rain fire down from heaven and consume them. In verse 10, And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne. We're going to talk about this throne in just a minute. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And they were all judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown in the lake of fire. This lake, is the, this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Look at that next point. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will usher in the great white throne judgment for all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. What we just read about the great white throne judgment is the judgment of God upon those who have rejected Jesus. It is the final place of judgment where people will be literally condemned to the lake of fire where they will burn forever and ever and ever separated from God. But there's another judgment that Jesus also ushers in. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because this is the judgment seat of Christ is for the church, it's for Christians, it's for believers in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says this. For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
And we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear, he's speaking to the church here in Corinthians, he's talking to born-again believers, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15, Paul speaks of this again. He says, because of God's grace, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. And anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. So he's speaking to those whose lives are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Again, he's speaking to Christians. He says, for no other foundation can be laid. Verse 13. He says, but on the day of judgment, on the judgment day, That's the judgment seat of Christ. Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. And the fire will show if a person's work has any value. Our works are going to be measured by a kingly, eternal, God-given value system. How many know there's a value system in the world, and then there's a value system that comes from God? And let me just give you some good news today. You, you, can, you, can be, you can be a failure by the world system and be a success by God's system. But the greatest warning is make sure you're not a success by the world system and a failure by God's system. Because one day we as believers are going to stand before Christ and be judged and our works are going to be based or tried by fire based upon the value system of God's kingdom and his word. Verse 14. And if the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Right? There's going to be a revelation that we wasted our time, our energy, our efforts on things that had no real value. But look what it says. But the builder will be saved. But like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Let me just share what the Holy Spirit gave me so I make sure we understand it together. I believe, according to my understanding of Scripture, that the judgment seat of Christ happens between the rapture of the church and the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. This judgment seat is not a place of punishment. It is a place of reward. The great white throne judgment is a place of punishment where people are going to be condemned to eternal separation from God. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place of punishment. It is a place of reward. It literally is called in the Greek the Bema seat. And the word Bema seat is a picture. This is what the picture of, of the Olympics, the Greek Olympics. And we even use it today, right? We have the little pedestal. You got the, the bronze, and then you step up, and you got the silver, and you step up, and you got the gold. You know what that's called? The Bema seat. It's a place of reward. God is not setting you up for a place of judgment. God is setting you up to reward you for all the good things you have done. This is what the Lord said to me as I was praying. He said, Keith, do you realize that much of what many Christians do is never seen by man? It's never noticed by man. And even sometimes what we do as Christians is sometimes mocked by man. But he said, on that day, all those things you did out of loving obedience to Jesus are going to be rewarded. 
All those things that went unseen by man have been seen by God, and they're going to be rewarded. Your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, your grace, when you bless people that cursed you, when you love people that hated you, when you pray for people that despised you, when you fed the hungry and clothed the naked, when you shared the gospel and ministered to people, when you made disciples and you went to the ends of the earth, when you loved the unlovable and touched the untouchable and reached the unreachable, when you did all of those things, not for show, because the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, if you do it to be seen by man, that's your reward. But if you do it out of a heart of loving obedience to God, then one day you'll receive a reward. And here's the good news about that reward. It is an eternal reward that will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Jesus Christ is going to set us up for that. He's going to bring in that judgment seat of Christ so that he can reward us for the good things that we do. Revelations 21, not only does Jesus usher in the great white throne, not only does Jesus usher in the judgment seat of Christ, but Jesus ultimately ushers in what the Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth. Revelations 21, 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home. Look at verse 3. God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. God is reestablishing what was lost in the Garden of Eden. What Adam and Eve lost through sin, God is going to reestablish through Jesus. What the first Adam lost, Jesus, the second Adam, is going to reclaim. And verse 4 says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And all these things are gone forever. Boy, when Paul said the suffering we endure is not worthy to be compared to the glory we're going to receive, he wasn't kidding. We're going to have an eternal reward where we're going to spend forever and ever and ever on what the Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth. So I want you to hear this. I want to give you just a little thought here today. How many of you ever heard somebody describe heaven as a place with streets of gold and gates of pearls? Y'all ever heard that? Well, what we typically describe as heaven is streets of gold and gates of pearl. If you'll read the rest of Revelation 21, you'll find out that what we describe as heaven is not really heaven. It's the new Jerusalem. It's that heavenly city that's going to come down out of heaven. And the Bible says that there's going to be a new heaven, that's speaking of the heavenlies, the, 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 the sky, and a new earth. Wherein will dwell righteousness. And that heavenly Jerusalem, that city, is going to come down of heaven and going to be the centerpiece of this new earth. And we're going to have glorified bodies and we're not going to float around on clouds playing harps. We're going to rule and reign on a new earth. We're going to enjoy a world with no sin, no shame, no curse, no sorrow, no pain, no sadness, no death. And if you think this world's beautiful, wait till you see the new one. I like, I just, I'm just going to share. It's a little, little something funny. I tell Kelly every now and then. I think about Jesus in his glorified body, how he would appear and then disappear. He would show up in the room and then he would disappear and he wouldn't be on the room. And then he'd show up on the road to Emmaus and then he'd disappear and he'd be ahead of them 20 miles down the road. I told her, I said, I can't wait till we get to that new heaven and that new earth. 
And just think of all the beauty and all the creation. I won't never have to get in a car again. I won't ever have to fly on a plane again. I won't have to get on a train, car, or an automobile. All I got to do is think, Lord, I want to I stand on top of the highest mountain. I want to soak my feet in the prettiest ocean. I want to walk along the greenest valley. I want to swim in the, in the river of life. I want to see the glory of God. And in a moment, a twinkle of eye, bam, bam, bam. Because the suffering of this world does not compare to the glory that God has in store for those who love him. So I want us to do this today. Let's just stand to our feet. Let's just bow our heads. Man, what a, what a beautiful promise we have, a reality in Christ that's more real than anything. But the glory that we just talked about, that new heaven and new earth with that heavenly Jerusalem is a place reserved only for those who are born again. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Church members don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Generous people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Compassionate people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. There's one name given under heaven by which all mankind, the Bible says, must be saved. That one name is Jesus. And Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see and you can't enter the kingdom. But if you'll accept me, he said, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor Keith, I've never experienced that. Maybe you're a great person. Maybe you're a wonderful person. Maybe you're a generous person. Maybe you're a compassionate person. But you know in your heart you're not a born-again saved person. You've never received that guarantee that comes from the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, living and dwelling in you. And today you say, Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. I want to be born again. And I want to receive that great gift that God has offered me freely. I don't have to earn it. All I have to do is by faith receive it. I want to receive it today. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. I want to receive that amazing gift. If that's you, just slip your hand up. If you're watching online, you can just type in that chat box. I'm raising my hand. I want to be saved. We want to pray with you. We want to help you take that next step. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be a day where God's going to reward us. But the great white throne judgment is a judgment reserved for those who have rejected Christ. Don't be that person. Don't allow pride. Don't allow stubbornness. Don't allow any of those things, other people's opinions or thoughts about you, don't allow any of that to keep you from receiving the greatest gift any person can ever have, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ. So if that's you, we're about to pray. Just slip your hand up right now. Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. I want to be born again. Let's just pray this prayer right now, all of us together, out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, Dear Heavenly Father I believe. 
Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe Jesus is the Lamb of God that has come and that is coming again. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. I receive you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise today. We love you guys. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. We want to help you take those next steps. We love you. We're honored to be with you here today. Hey, let me encourage you. Next Sunday, Christmas Eve, invite somebody to come. Bring somebody with you, and let's have a great time celebrating Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day in the Lord.